Hi, everyone. This is NBC 10 Boston's question and answer series on Russia's war in Ukraine. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Ola Kotsuba of Harvard University and Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University. Thank you guys for joining us every week. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I want to start by talking about an op-ed that President Biden wrote in New York Times stating that the U.S. will send more advanced long-range missile systems and weapons worth uh, to the tune of $700 million um, to Ukraine, which is, a, which is sort of a pivot from where he, from what he said on Monday, which was that, uh, you know, sending Ukraine weapons that could strike inside of Russia was sort of off the table. So I wanted to hear from you guys what you thought about the op-ed and what you make of that change uh, in stance. Maya, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I personally was very glad to see the op-ed because I think media attention has been fading a bit away from the war and it's important to keep the focus on it. It's certainly the top priority for many countries in terms of foreign policy. So I was glad that he really reiterated some of the main points of why the US and European countries are supporting Ukraine and, and what's really at stake here with um, Ukrainian self-determination, sovereignty, its aspirations for democracy and everything. So I think these ideas, these key concepts and values came across well in the op-ed. As for uh, Biden's decision and the government in general to kind of move towards uh, providing longer range um, rocketry, I think that some of this is that the U.S. is looking ahead to what will the, the negotiations to end the war look like. And really with what we've seen over the last few months, it seems that it is possible to really see a kind of Russian decisive defeat. Um, it's it's hard to really define that, what that would be, but it's getting closer to looking like it can be quite clear that Russia has lost in some pretty significant ways, which would help Ukraine when they enter in diplo into diplomacy down the road. So, you know, I think Biden said this actually in, in sort of justifying the decision, but but he was able to really get some firm promises from the Ukrainian military that they would not target areas within Russia. They would not sort of go on the offense and target Russian territory. And because of that, and the desire to really sort of strike a strong chord militarily on the battlefield, uh, Biden made this decision to, to provide the medium range advanced rocket systems. Um, so I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in Western political circles about how should this end? What should it look like? But one thing that seems quite clear is that, you know, a true Russian defeat in a way is within reach. And, and so why not try to aim for that and to make it look strong? I think another dynamic on the battlefield is that a lot of the battles are happening in a way that are, are sort of like at a distance, um, less in terms of, you know, battle on the streets or in combat on the ground. And, and a lot of the destruction is happening at a distance. So Russian forces are targeting places in, in eastern and southern Ukraine um, with missiles of their own. And this is why the Ukrainian army is really asking to have these, these medium range weapons and um, I think it's a good sign. It's it's always comes with risks um, because 
Russians will, of course, say that, oh, this is an escalation. The United States is fully in, into this conflict. It's a war um, that involves the U.S. Um, a lot of this is just grandstanding. But I think it was the right choice for Biden to sort of escalate into this posture, given what's at stake and what's probably around the corner in terms of diplomacy. Great. Pablo, what do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with what Maya has said. And I think it's clear indication to a great extent that sort of the end game is in sight. And I think the United States in particular and the West are looking at ways what's going to happen when... I, I, I would like to say I think it's clear now, it's evident that Russia is not going to claim outright victory here, right? That's that's going out the window. There's no real possibility that Vladimir Putin is going to achieve its main war objective. So we're really thinking about the end game here. What is Ukraine going to look like in, say, particularly in the next winter when, when things start to get really, really complicated? And um, and we really start to see what's going to be the situation on the ground. And on the one hand, I think the United States is understanding, and the understanding is this may become a war of attrition in these sort of territories that Russia is going to be claiming for itself. And there's going to be have to be a bit more of a smart warfare in a way. And long-range missiles play a very important part in that battle for territory, battle for control of a territory that is going to be prolonged over time. And I just read today uh, news reports that Ukraine is losing about 100 soldiers every day, every day, uh, holding troops every day. And you cannot sustain that that pace of losses, right? So I think it's a very important movement. I also think it's a risk, right? But it's it sort of falls within the what we've been seeing throughout the war, right? They, they, the West very reluctantly trying to de-escalate and then sort of making little, these little U-turns that bring it closer into the conflict. And we've seen this happening. Joe Biden saying we're not going to give long-range missiles and then sort of changing their mind once they sort of uh, understand what's going on. And they give themselves a little bit of time to think, which I think is is fair enough. But I think there is a certain risk to this for sure. Uh, and it has to be a calculated risk. But there is the possibility that Vladimir Putin claims that whatever territories run a sham referendum and some sort of sham election and they will claim that these territories are now part of the Russian Federation or their Russian territories and then what happens with these sort of fake Russian territories if you wish start being attacked with American uh, weapons American military and, and military equipment and Western military equipment so there is a clear risk there uh, obviously the risk and the calculation here is that the international community will not accept these territories as, as Russian territories. Uh, the Ukrainian people are not going to give away this territory. And what Henry Kissinger was suggesting a few days ago, that Ukraine should just cede away some territory and move on with their lives as if nothing happens, that is not the alternative. That is not the option. And I think that makes that evidently clear to the people of Ukraine, but also to, to Vladimir Putin in Russia. This is not a matter of we'll negotiate some sort of settlement, give away some territory and move on. This is going to the long run, and the United States is committed to defending that territory in the long term. And I think that's a very, very important message. Um, thank you for, for talking about this important issue. And I, I would like to perhaps continue uh, slightly more with uh, Pablo's point um, about how the West has been reacting. Uh, only to say that uh, this, I think this decision, this step, comes about two months too late for Ukrainians. In many ways, if we think about the city of Mariupol that has been wiped out and where just according to the reports, uh, 21,000 casualties among the civilian populations have been recorded. That's just the recorded ones. And we don't know how many more. 
where disease is spreading because the bodies cannot be removed from the streets, where there are mass graves, you know, and people are still hunkering in uh, in basements without food and water. So if if that if this decision were made two months ago, it could have been a lot more, um, you know, helpful in saving those tens of thousands of lives. Um, and so, unfortunately, we see that the West and the United States and others are extremely reluctant, um, you know, in in making these uh, decisions, uh, thinking perhaps that you know uh, they may provoke Vladimir Putin. We have seen already that uh, Vladimir Putin does not need any provocation. Uh, his, uh, you know, his decisions are made based on completely, you know, different grounds uh, that have very little to do very often with, you know, what the West does or doesn't. Um, and so, um, uh, Ukrainians had hoped for slightly longer range missiles. So these are perhaps the intermediate range, range missiles that have will be provided. Uh, they reach about forty miles. Uh, in range. Uh, Ukrainians had hoped for about 200 miles in range. For the main reason being that um, some of the supply lines going, supplying the conflict are coming uh, through, of course, from Russia and kind of entering Ukrainian territory uh, on the Ukrainian border that the Russians have taken over. And so Ukrainians had hoped to be able to uh, deter the resupply of the war effort of the Russians uh, coming from the Russian territory. Uh, at the same time, uh, as we know, the uh, you know the Russian troops are in Ukraine, and they are destroying Ukrainians and Ukrainian cities and roads and so on. And so Ukrainians, of course, are in their right to retaliate. Um, and so, the, being dependent as they are on Western military aid, of course, that decision is not entirely theirs. Um, that's number one. Number two, I think that um, there is, I think there's a, a slightly global change happening in kind of in the in relation to Russia as well as to the conflict itself. It appears that many leaders around the world are realizing that the Russian military power is not what it what it seemed before the war, and so I think that this step in particular, as well as the step by Chancellor Scholz, uh, a German ch a chancellor. Uh, of delivering um, a very, very, uh, you know, substantial uh, heavy armor, heavy, heavy military aid to Ukraine now, including anti-aircraft uh, missile system uh, called IRIS-T, uh, as far as I remember. Uh, it, act, it points all to this kind of sea change that is happening uh, globally. Um, uh, uh, Ukra Ukrainian poet Iya Kiva has put it very, I think, very succinctly. She said, uh, we're sending Ukrainian culture as a humanitarian aid throughout the world. Uh, and this is really what is happening. The courage to stand up to the bully, to, to Russia, to Putin, uh, it appears, you know, is finally um, settling in. Right. Um, anything else for, any, for anyone to add on that subject before I move on to my next question? No. Okay. The latest, I just want to talk about the latest on sort of there's been a lot going on on gas and oil and energy sanctions. Uh, EU leaders uh, agreed to ban 90% of Russian oil by the end of the year. Um, but there's been some concerns about whether inflation might get in the way of those efforts. And there's been some disagreement, um, you know, among leaders about it. So can we just talk a little bit about what's been going on with that and, um, what 
you know, what, what everyone should be know, should know about it. Uh, Pablo, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something we've, we've talked about before uh, between us as well, and something that, again, it seems long overdue, uh, and these sanctions should have been put together uh, probably, again, months ago. There was some holdback, particularly with Orban, uh, not really willing to comply in Hungary and other countries that are more dependent or perhaps in some senses more aligned with Vladimir Putin as well and Vladimir Putin's oil. Uh, but again, I think this is it's an important step and it's, it's a necessary step. Uh, but again, I think there's the issue of gas, which is more important than the issue of, of oil necessarily. And gas is a real question for Europe. And if Europe is going to be able to survive in the long run without uh, uh, Russian gas, in particular during the winter, right? So now spring is coming to Europe, summer is coming to Europe. It's a completely different story. What happens when uh, you move into the winter and you need to shorten and you need to buy more gas from, from Russia, particularly if you end up having a cold winter? So this is very, very problematic, particularly, as you say, with the problems of inflation. And we've seen, and Maya alluded to this before as well, we're starting to see perhaps a little bit the attention sort of shifting away from the conflict in Ukraine. It's It happens with every conflict, right? It gets into a little bit of a routine of what's going on. And, you know, the news are not as shocking as they were before. And you get into a certain routine of the war. Things settle down a little bit. There's not been huge gains or huge losses over the last few days. So it, it becomes a little bit of a routine. People start to worry more about inflation, start worrying about other things. What happens then when these um, sort of, to an extent, self-imposed sanctions Europe is imposing on itself really start to bite? And really, the cost of living crisis really becomes a lot worse in Europe. And what happens in particular during the winter when fuel prices skyrocket? What happens when Europe has to, has no alternative but to buy uh, Russian gas? And that's going to be the, the real question, the real moment of truth for, for European unity and for European public opinion in general. Uh, for the time being, I think it's a welcome step. Again, a little bit too late, but the real battle here, I think, has to do more with gas and will ha have to be fought when we get closer to the winter months as well. Um, Maya, what do you think? Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Pablo and, and gas is incredibly hard because we're talking about, you know, a complete ban on gas from Russia would mean a 2.5% decline in growth in the EU. So I think it's important to remember that what the EU has done so far is really remarkable. Uh, the way that it has been able to pull together um, it would have been unimaginable before the war. And so this rapid sort of coming together, getting onto the same page, and then being willing to take the extra step of sacrificing at home, you know, this, this is something that hurts the EU's economy. The hope is that it just hurts Russia's more. Um, but this is, is something that for me, it's concerning that, you know, these far-right extremist parties and groups and movements in Europe might start using this as a reason to kind of gain more voters and to stir up anti-EU sentiment. And you get to the point that this happened during the um, 2015 refugee crisis, right, where it's kind of like the EU is trying to do the right thing, but in the process, it risks actually undermining itself. It, the whole project of integration and peace and all of the stuff the Ukrainians are fighting to be a part of all of those Western liberal values become under threat in their efforts to really, really stand up to, to Russia or to you know, take in as many refugees as possible because you have these far right elements and populist elements in the EU 
it is worrying that the longer this drags on, the more they kind of have ways to say, to say, look how you're suffering in Europe. Look at what the EU is doing. This isn't good for us. Um, I would rather see a quicker move to, to end the war for this reason, because right now I think the EU is still strong. It was able to agree to these sanctions, which are significant and will cause a lot of pain ultimately. But it needs to kind of solidify that, standing up for those values in this, in this way, um, trying to end the war before it actually starts to undermine the very thing that they're fighting for. Mm -hmm. um, so that becomes concerning when we look at past crises in the EU and just how they have played out. Hola. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant point and very well observed. This is the real danger that the EU is facing, the unity of the bloc and fighting for the values that you know it was created to defend uh, versus you know various nationalist isolationist tendencies that do exist and have always existed in all of these countries. And so the, rep the representation of that is specifically this sanction package, the sixth sanction passage, the uh, package that we just passed uh, by the EU countries. So Hungary, of course, is not the only country that does not want these sanctions, but Hungary and Orban, of course, have, have not shied away from campaigning on that. Orban, you know, kind of uh, harboring this anti-EU sentiments and trying to kind of use it as a, for political momentum, for internal political reasons. Um, but there are other also other factors that are playing into this. Uh, as we know, uh, in June, uh, an EU summit is, summit is planned, and um, the issue of Ukrainian, Moldovan, and Georgian candidacy was supposed to be discussed. Uh, ahead of that, uh, Prime Minister of Italy, Braghi, has uh, made a statement that all of the big EU countries, except for Italy, are actually against giving, giving candidacy to Ukraine. Um, and so it's, it, it is a very significant um, uh, development or continuation of the same development, right? So kind of this very cautious um, uh, uh, movement to uh, try and separate itself economically and politically from Russia, but then kind of try to bring in Ukraine. Uh, and so there is a lot of negotiation going on there. Uh, the package also includes um, uh, cutting out, cutting off uh, Sberbank, the largest Russian bank, uh, from SWIFT. That is, uh, you know, way overdue. Should have happened also two, three months ago. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree with Maya, and I think that's a very, very strong point. That if the EU were more decisive in implementing the sanctions from very early on, uh, th that could have had a, a much stronger impact on ending the war. Um, and in the long run, uh, or in the short run, in fact, uh, it is in EU's interest to, to do everything they can to end the war quickly, uh, be it with supplies of weaponry or with severely restricting any kind of business uh, being done with Russia. How likely is that, though? Because we've talked about this <clears throat> lasting potentially for years. How likely is the... Uh, that the they can end it quickly. Well, so we know that the, so the Russians are not able to uh, resupply what they have already used up in Ukraine. There, these are thousands of missiles that have been fired at Ukraine. Uh, they do not have the components and the parts to rebuild kind of that arsenal, uh, given the sanctions, the Western sanctions, because a lot of these uh, uh, materials and components are actually produced in the West. Uh, in the past, Ukraine actually was also one of the main supplier of various parts uh, for Russia. 
so that's number one. Number two, the morale continues to be extremely low. They're suffering devastating losses in Ukraine. So uh, as of today, I believe the, uh, the the count according to the Ukrainian military is over 30,000 in in um, uh, in um, uh, sorry personnel or personnel or the kind of the soldiers on the ground. That's more than the Soviet Union lost in six years of the war in Afghanistan, just for comparison, because that's kind of the previous war that people still remember when the kind of this, uh, you know, a metal, um, uh, you know, containers with bodies of the soldiers started to arrive in the Soviet Union. And that was like sparked this anti-war movement. Uh, we have seen more and more expressions within Russia uh, against the war. Um, you know, uh, recently at a concert in St. Petersburg, the whole stadium was uh, saying F the war, you know, and so on. So a lot, this is kind of, these kind of expressions are rising within Russia. So the pressure to end the war is rising with Russia. They're not able to sustain the, uh, the, the military kind of combat power. That's why they're limiting their operations just to the east. So right now it's Severodonetsk, Severodonetsk and Liman. Uh, the two the two kind of little cities that they're trying to take in order to completely take over the uh, the two regions the Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast uh, and they're not able to do it because they're taking the, the city and then they're losing it again um, the, according to the military reports the losses among the uh, the military personnel are particularly high in the middle and lower officer echelon and that is extremely significant for the uh, uh, battlefield strategy and tactics right they are they are the ones who are supposed to execute on the ground and they're losing the most of them uh, and that's on top of what i believe 10 generals at this point that russia has lost lost in ukraine right so there is a lot of going a lot of kind of potential here for ending the war with a more decisive stance from the west ukraine is already doing i think more than anyone had hoped it, it would do um, and honestly, you know, kind of more weapons, more more aid, and stronger, even stronger sanctions on Russia to cripple uh, their ability to finance the war. I think, you know, it could bring the uh, uh, this into the view. Right. There, there was also this um, incident in which the Russian ambassador in Geneva basically left his post and spoke out against Russian foreign policy in this war. Um, you know, at the beginning of, of all this, when we started this series, we, we were talking about how sanctions can be somewhat frustrating because they take a little bit. It's not like you throw out the sanctions and then war stops on the battlefield. But now we're at the stage in time where, you know, the sanctions are actually really having an effect. And I think it's going to be hard, in addition to everything um, that Ole mentioned on the battlefield, domestically for Putin to continue to stay in power or to at least have such um, high favorability ratings as he's had in the past, when the people in Russia are really getting more information kind of leaking in gradually, and they're suffering the effects of these sanctions, especially now that the, the biggest Russian bank is going to be out of SWIFT. Um, we're really at that spot where everything's kind of converging, where all of the strategies are basically reaching fruition. And we can see that, you know, why shouldn't this just end sooner rather than later, um, especially because Putin himself is increasingly in a precarious position domestically. Yeah. Um, 
So I hear a lot of talk among experts about now we should prepare for this long drawn out war that will go on for years. And I just don't see how that could happen when Russia can't resupply, when they have these brutal sanctions where they're a pariah and sort of isolated, how many more Russian ambassadors might walk away from their posts because they have access to all of the information. So I think it's incredibly important for that to be part of the strategy, a quicker end to the war. Great. Thank you for that. Something else that might come into play here, because we're talking about the global community as it relates to the conflict, is the um, grain shortage. President Zelensky was saying that the Russian blockade is preventing Kiev from exporting, I believe, 22 million tons of grain, um, raising the threat of famine and even a new migration crisis. Can we talk a little bit about what's going on with that, Ole? Yes, Sure. Uh, we had predicted that um, in, basically before the war started, you know, some of the um, questions here in the United States uh, considered, you know, why is it important for us that, you know, a war is happening some, somewhere far away in Europe? And this is one of the reasons if the, uh, the global grain supply um, diminishes, Ukraine is the third largest producer uh, of grain supply in the world. And so if, if it globally uh, uh, diminishes, that will affect global prices, including here in the United States. We have already seen the, uh, the rise in uh, oil and gas prices, uh, and, that, and that, of course, is leading to inflation, right? So all of that is interconnected. And really, kind of it's, it, might, it might sting right now when people fill up their gas tanks and they're spending $100 on a tank, but it will really sting if they can buy, you know, three items at the store and spend a hundred dollars which of course that's an exaggeration but mm -hmm. nevertheless so that's where the when the food is concerned that is going to real estate and so that's you know of course for a country like the united states it's less of a concern northern africa is the real concern here ukraine uh, was the perhaps the larger exporter of grain to northern africa as well as to other countries on the african continent and so um, the, the question here is going to be how they, they would be able to, um, you know, um, uh, uh, get those supplies from somewhere else. And there isn't, right now, there isn't that much supply. The prices are rising everywhere. Um, right now, uh, Ukraine is trying to work with Poland, with the EU, with the Baltic states to try and create export routes using uh, railways. Uh, but the problem is that Ukraine is using a slightly wider railway track, um, which is something that is, is used throughout, you know, the former Soviet Union. And so it's not that easy to actually send trains from Ukraine into Western Europe, um, because Western Europe is using a slightly narrower railway tra track. And so they are working on kind of various ways of how to kind of uh, transition from one to another. But obviously, you know, only about 10% of the capacity compared to the capacity of the ports uh, you know, would allow, you know, would be able to go through uh, the railway tracks. Pablo, did you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I think this really, two things. One, I think this is really reminding us how fragile, um, you know, the, the global production chains really are, how fragile ecosystem we live in, in which any single disturbance can have huge economic consequences and huge real-life consequences. And this is not a minor disturbance, right? We are seeing... Uh, pretty much the collapse of the production of, of one of the greatest world, uh, greatest producers in, in grains. And this is going to have knock-on effects, sure, certainly in the poorest countries, 
but it's already having an effect in the poorest sector, sectors, even in uh, rich European countries, right? For example, in the UK, but it's the same in the rest of the European Union, we're seeing that inflation is being translated to a greater extent to the more sort of basic foodstuffs, right? So in the UK, for example, the cost of pasta has uh, gone up by 50% since the beginning of the war and these little things. So this is the sort of stuff as well that has a real impact on the poorest people in society and, and the lower incomes in society. And again, as Maya was saying, this is what really plays into the hands of more uh, opportunistic political movements as well that are saying, well, why are you being hungry? Why are you, you know, all these things that are going on? What, this is not your fault. This is not your problem. You shouldn't be going hungry because NATO wants to expand into, into uh, Eastern Europe, right? And there is a big issue there that is being played out and there's a big conversation about this and there's a lot of political forces involved in this discussion. And, and I think uh, this is creating a reminder of how sort of fragile our existence in this ecosystem is. And it, it definitely impacts the lower income countries, uh, but it also impacts uh, the West and impacts particularly the European Union and particularly European countries, which again, you must not forget that these countries are uh, heavily dependent on the consent of their populations for every single action they take abroad, right? So the British government cannot do whatever it wants when it comes back down to supporting the war effort in Ukraine. If the people in the United Kingdom stop supporting the war effort in Ukraine and turn their backs on NATO and what NATO stands for, for example, then the British government simply cannot do what it wants, right? And this is a real, real issue. And you can start to see a little bit as well of that the public opinion is starting to shift a little bit. People, again, they get used to the war. They get you know, accustomed to the war. Uh, things start to get a lot more expensive. Politicians very simply can say, well, this isn't my fault. This is what happens in Ukraine. And people may start getting tired with this, fed up with this and say, we want an end to the war, whatever end it may be, do it now. I don't want to be hungry, which is, by the way, a fair enough assessment. I, know, I don't want to criticize people for feeling that way. But yeah, this is really, really problematic. And, and this is something that really... I think politicians have to be very responsible and have this communicate this message and not simply say that every single problem, every single economic crisis is the fault of the war in Ukraine, which is a lazy option, is a lazy answer, and is not necessarily the truth. And as Maya was pointing out, this is exactly the same thing that happened during the migration crisis, where a lot of lazy politicians blamed everything on, you know, these are criminals, it's a criminal problem, you know, this it's human trafficking networks, it's a criminal issue. And just sort of swept it under the rug and did not look at the underlying conditions. So we have to be very careful how we talk about that in particular. Maya, anything to add on that? Um, no, I think that that's a great assessment. And just another reason why, you know, I think the narrative has to shift to how do we swiftly end this war? Um, and we're really feeling these supply chain um, crunches as well because of the pandemic. I mean, that's when the supply chain problems emerged. And then now they get exacerbated with this war in Ukraine. So. Absolutely. That's a good place to end. I think thank you guys so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And we'll check in with you next week. Thank you.